On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Carl Truman about his brand new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We cover a lot of topics that related to his book, like how are intuitions of society at large formed? How did sex and sexual identity become such basic markers of our identity and our culture? Why was there a shift from a culture of honor to one of dignity? And what are the biggest misunderstandings people have about how we've gotten to this point in history? If you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can always hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We're a podcast that hopes to foster thinking by creating an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And today, I'm really elated to have Dr. Carl Truman back on the show to discuss his brand new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, with the subtitle, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. This is published by Crossway, so you can get it from Crossway, you can get it from Amazon, you can get it from wherever you get your books, Westminster Theological Seminary Bookstore, or wherever that may be. It is available now. So the day this episode is dropping is the day after the book is ready to be released. So go get yourself a copy now because just my own opinion, uh, I'm sure Brandon probably agrees with me, is that I think this book is absolutely fantastic and every single pastor needs to own a copy and read this and read it really twice. And if it were up to me, I think we'd have a four-hour mega episode with Dr. Truman to talk through all the intricacies of this book. So one thing I really love about the book and I'll just say it now, is Dr. Truman doesn't hide his presuppositions. He doesn't hide his own opinions on the history, but he doesn't let that color his own historical analysis. So I think it's very fair. It's very balanced. So even if you disagree fundamentally with Dr. Truman, I think you're actually going to really appreciate how he's constructed the narrative and explained all the pieces that go into it. So, Dr. Truman, before we jump into the topic, why don't you give us just a little bit of background of who you are, and then tell me, how is it that you got to a point of, I want to write a book on uh, the modern self and the sexual revolution and all that goes on with that? What What is the driving factor that got you to that point? Yeah, well, I'm professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And by training, I'm really a 16th, 17th century guy. I worked in Reformation and post-Reformation studies for many years. Uh, This book came about in a slightly odd way. I guess I'd, I'd reached a point in my career where... I'd pretty much done everything I wanted to do in my area of expertise and was was looking for another interesting project. And I was approached by Justin Taylor at Crossway and Rod Dreher, senior editor of the American Conservative, who asked me if I would be willing to write uh, an introduction to the thought of a guy called Philip Reef, who f- does feature in, in, in the final book. And, and I said, sure, I, I need to read some Reef. I need to see what's there in order to uh, to decide how to take this book. And as I was reading Reef, it became clear to me that a more interesting and, and more important book would be not to simply introduce Reef, but to actually use Reef's ideas and apply them to some of the pressing cultural issues of the day. And uh, and so I sent the proposal into Crossway. Uh, it, it's, it was a bit of a risk by them. They were 
commissioning a kind of book they'd never commissioned before from a guy who'd never written a book like this before. Uh, and the book you have before you uh, is really the fruit of that. It, it became ultimately an attempt to, to set the sexual revolution which we've seen unfolding in the West since the 1960s within the broader context of Western intellectual and, and cultural history. So it, it traveled a long way from the 120-page the introduction to Philip Reef that it was originally uh, proposed as. Since you brought up Reef, let's, let's start there because I do think it's, it's important for us to, to begin with some of these foundational categories and concepts and paradigms that you explain early on in the book, and then you continue to go back to them as you um, – continue on forward in the book. So let's start with his, with Reef's cultural paradigm and maybe how does that um, help us understand how our sense of the self has been transformed, particularly in the last 50 years? Yeah. In fact, it, perhaps it'd be helpful if I clarify exactly what I mean by self in the book, so that I can then sort of set Reef into sure, that. Yeah. You know, most people are saying, well, what does he mean when, when he's talking about a self? Well, there's a, there's a common sense way in which we understand ourselves as selves. You know, I know I'm not Brandon Askew or, or, or Jordan. You know you're not me. We have a, a, a self-awareness at that level. What I mean by self in the book is something more, something deeper and more complicated than that, and that's how we understand ourselves and our place within the world, how we, how we understand what human happiness is, how we understand what human purpose is, how we understand what the fulfilled or good life might look might look like. That's the, the notion of self that I'm getting at in the book. And Reef is helpful there. Reef, uh, he's, he's actually a sort of secular Jewish thinker, uh, a, a Sigmund Freud scholar, worked for many years at the University of Pennsylvania as the professor of sociology. And in 1966, he wrote a book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, where he essentially argued that over previous centuries, there'd been this kind of reversal in how human selfhood, in the second sense I used it there, was uh, was used and understood, in that in earlier eras, the self had been seen as, as fundamentally outwardly directed. And now it's become an inwardly directed thing. Again, listeners might say, well, well, what's the big deal? So I use an example in the book of, of my grandfather and myself, and I, I pose the question to him and to me sort of hypothetically. He's been dead some years now, but I pose the question, you know, uh, what is job satisfaction? And for my grandfather, I'm pretty confident that his answer would have been, well, job satisfaction is, is being paid uh, uh, a fair day's wage for an honest day's work. It's being able to put shoes on my children's feet. It's being able to clothe and feed my family. It's very outwardly directed. You ask me that same question, and I'm likely to say something like, well, I get a real buzz out of teaching. I get a kick out of being in the classroom. Uh, that makes me feel good. And, and you'll notice there a, a sort of switch in direction for my, for my grandfather. His selfhood was outwardly directed. For me, my selfhood is inwardly directed. It's, it's really psychological. And Reef says this is a, a general pattern in Western culture. And it's led to what he calls the, the rise of the therapeutic. Uh, in other words, the, the purpose of life is to, to cultivate that inner psychological sense of well-being. He has a dramatic way of, of posing this relative to the church. He says, you know, in previous eras, uh, people did not go to the church to be made happy. They went to have their misery explained to them. 
And that's quite a striking mm. way of putting it, but it gets the heart of that shift he's talking about, that, that Reef really sees this reversal. And there are other things as well that Reef does, I think, that are interesting in that he sees sexual codes. Really following Freud, he sees sexual codes lying at the heart of what culture is. You can tell how a culture is, is organized at its most basic level by seeing the kinds of sexual behavior it outlaws, that it doesn't tolerate. And that makes our current climate very interesting because really we're seeing uh, uh, the demolition of, of all sexual taboos uh, before our very eyes. And Reef would say that's not just an issue of expanding what is and is not sexually acceptable within society. That's actually involves a fundamental transformation of what society and, and culture is. So Reef is, uh, he's a very pessimistic kind of thinker. It's getting worse and worse and worse as far as he's concerned. But I think he really puts his finger on some of what I call in the book, yeah, the pathologies of modern culture that turn inward and the, the prioritizing, the focus upon the issue of sexual morality and sexual behavior. Another figure that you draw on in the, in the book is Charles Taylor and uh, his concept of the, the social imaginary. And I think that's another concept that would be helpful to have in place. So explain to us what, what Taylor means and why you, you've drawn on that and used it in your book. Yeah, the social imaginary is this concept that uh, Charles Taylor articulates uh, in his book, A Secular Age. Uh, he also he's written a little book, Modern Social Imaginaries. And it's, it's his way of trying to get at the way we we think about the world. And when you think about how we relate to the world around us, by and large, we don't think back to first principles all the time. We're not constantly analyzing the world and driving it back to foundational principles. Most of our life in this world, most of the way we relate to the world around us is what we would describe as intuitive. We have a particular way of imagining the world to be. It's, it's not a theoretical framework that we built. It's a set of intuitions, intuitions that we often sort of absorb or, or are profoundly shaped by the environments in which we live. So I like this concept of Taylor because one of the, the tendencies, particularly of academics, intellectuals, historians of ideas, theologians, is to always think that, that it's the ideas that are the most important thing. Ideas are very important, but you know, take evolution, for example. Most people don't believe in evolution because they truly understand the genetic science that lies behind it. Most people believe in evolution because it kind of fits with the way they imagine the world to be. It shapes the way they imagine the world. It's plausible. It's, it's intuitively. It intuitively makes sense to them. So, again, in the book, the book is not simply a, a story of these are what certain eggheads thoughts and this is how we get down to the present day book also attempts to see how some of the thoughts of eggheads became common currency in the way we imagine the world to be not because people read books by rousseau or blake or shelley or marx but because their ideas kind of percolate into the intuitions of the culture through through pop culture for example and shape the way we we unconsciously intuitively imagine the world to be yeah, that's really helpful. 
Because when I think about concepts like this and the social imaginary, I think it really helps the question of how do big, complex ideas actually make their way down to the ground floor to your average everyday person who's not reading big, massive tomes from Rousseau or from Reef or, or from anybody else? So how is it that they're actually coming up with these new ideas that are primarily being centered in academic circles and are very dense and very difficult? I think of a common example, at least in my own context, Southern Baptist Convention and others, this idea of critical race theory is all the rage. And there's this question of, it, it seems like critical race theory is a major academic discipline. There's a lot of stuff with the Frankfurt School and all these different things, if I understand it correctly. And, and there's a lot of intellectual aspects to this. And so some people will say, well, it's not really possible that the person in my pew actually has anything of substance from critical race theory. They haven't read a single book from any of these people who are actually espousing this. But it seems with concepts like the social imaginary, it actually can trickle down to the person in my pew. They don't have to read five books. They don't have to read 15 books. They don't even have to read one book. And these concepts can make their way down to them and affect them. And, I, and that's not me saying anything one way or another about critical race theory being right or wrong or helpful or unhelpful or anything. I'm just saying, in general, it seems that big concepts like that, complicated concepts like that, while the person in the pew may not get everything to it, it does seem with a concept like this that they can actually get some of those ideas and that can penetrate them. I mean, is that the right way to think about this? Yes, and I think critical race theory is, is, is a good example. You know, I, I don't want to delve into whether it's a good or a bad thing, but it's an interesting thing to look at in terms of how it works. I mean, the name of the principal organization driving it, Black Lives Matter, that, that sounds intuitively good to most of us. You know, who wants to say black lives don't matter? Um, we see images of, of black people being beaten up by the cops or on the TV. Yeah. It, 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 it looks intuitively unjust to us. And so when we hear some of the things that the critical race theorists say, it's not that we understand the you know, the origins of critical race theory and the Frankfurt School, and we understand post-Hegelian Marxism, et cetera, et cetera. It makes, a, it makes a kind of intuitive sense that, yeah, these people are being badly treated. Their lives matter. We need to get on board with the program. Uh, so, yes, uh, and again, to take perhaps a less loaded example, less politically loaded example, one of the big uh, ideas in my book is that one of the transformations that takes place in the modern age is we come to see sex as that which fulfills us individually. It ceases to be something to do with the other, the other person, and becomes something that, that fulfills me personally. Well, how does that come to grip the imagination? You've got to include things like soap opera, sitcoms that, that preach that message, uh, the advent of easy access pornography without social shame and stigmas attached to it preaches that message. So there are, there are a lot of avenues in, in culture whereby the ideas of the, of the big guys, the intellectuals, the theorists become the intuitive common currency of the masses. Do like major institutions, whether that be academic or, or maybe even just your own local churches and I guess, you know, Walmarts and everything, do, do they play roles, significant roles in shaping our intuitions like this? Certainly. Uh, and again, you know, there's, there's probably no one size fits all story here. Uh, but certainly if you see what's going on in higher education at the moment, uh, when administrations fail to, to stand up to cancel culture, 
cancel culture becomes more plausible. It seems that, yeah, there's something going on there that, that is good and proper and that we need to support. Uh, we have the arrival of, of what Rodria uh, calls you know, woke capitalism where the the behavior of big corporations is is not it, it doesn't come crashing down on us like a jackboot but it's able to to tilt us in certain directions it's able to make certain things more plausible than others simply in the way products are marketed or the way the company markets itself so there's a, there's a whole network of things in in culture that 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 help transform things in line with the ideas that are being espoused originally by just a few elite intellectual types. In your book, you talk about this concept of emotivism. I don't know, I'm probably pronouncing that improperly, but how does that impact our culture's definition of morality? Uh, and other concepts like, you know, victimhood, you talked about how victimhood becomes a virtue. Um, so maybe walk us through a little bit of that idea. Yeah, well, emotivism plays out in sort of two ways, I think, in the book. It was a term that is used by the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre, who in his, in his work After Virtue, published around about 1980, argues that a, a loss of a, a basic agreed way of looking at the world has meant that uh, moral discourse today has, has essentially collapsed. And what you really have when we're talking ethics to each other what we really have is expressions of emotional preference. So, for example, I might say abortion is wrong, but what I'm really saying is I personally happen to dislike abortion. Uh, I'm making my emotional preference, if you like, my aesthetic preference mm -hmm. into some kind of transcendent uh, claim. And McIntyre would said society no longer has a framework for me to make that kind of transcendent claim. So that's one aspect of emotivism. The other side of it is it's a convenient polemical tool for whacking people with whom you happen not to agree. I use the phrase in the book somewhere, I think, you know, emotivism for thee, but not for me. So we see this in, in the Supreme Court rulings where uh, the, the, I think it's in, uh, um, I can't remember which of the Supreme Court rulings in the, in the run-up to uh, gay marriage it is, but the, the judgment comes down that really the only reason for objecting to gay marriage is constitutional animus. In other words, kind of blind bigotry. Uh, so yeah. if you, you may present your arguments to the Supreme Court as a principled religious objection to gay marriage, actually, the Supreme Court has decided, no, 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 your religion is just a cover for the underlying bigotry. You know, you're trying to rationalize your bigotry under the cover of religion. So emotivism has become something of a... Uh, a sort of means of uh, of trying to reject, dismiss uh, one's uh, opponents. There was a, another part of the question, Jordan. I've forgotten what the, the yeah the victimhood as a virtue. Like, how does it that victimhood becomes a virtue? Yeah, again, that's a, it's a it's a very long story, and in part in part the origins of the story are are good and are things that as Christians we'd want to affirm in that at the Enlightenment, you have the breakdown of really of the medieval hierarchical system and, a, and an emphasis, and I think a, a healthy emphasis emerges on uh, universal human dignity. Everybody has dignity. What happens over time is that gets co-opted into a view of the world that, that sort of comes to see anybody who's suffering, anybody who's lacking something, uh, that's the result of somebody taking it off them. 
or it's the result of somebody imposing their will upon somebody else. You see forms of this in Nietzsche. You see another form of it in Marx. Uh, uh, and so that's the kind of the, the thinking that lies behind it. Then when you move into the 20th century, when we suddenly the world gets a lot smaller in terms of information, we're able to see photographs of Holocaust victims. We're able to see uh, the march on Selma. We're able to see human suffering in, in, in our own front rooms. Uh, mm. Victimhood becomes much more real to us. And uh, I think we see culture then tilting towards sympathy for the underdog, sympathy for the victim. Where the story gets complicated is when victimhood gets psychologized. Victimhood is no longer uh, a Nazi guard, uh, camp guard throwing you into a gas chamber and flipping the switch. It's no longer a policeman whacking you over the head with his truncheon or his bazin. It's when it becomes somebody using a word that, that I don't like, that I'm uncomfortable with, that makes me feel small. Then we get this massive expansion of what qualifies as victimhood and victimization. And that's the world we live in now, which is as a, yeah. uh, considerably more complicated in terms of how it understands victimhood than the world of 50, 60, 70 years ago. Yeah, so it's really interesting to me, this overall shift to psychologizing the self. Um, because when I think about things like the Sermon on the Mount, this this is an example that I guess came to me. It seems that this is a very psychological uh, way of thinking about the self and thinking about our own uh, relationships to sin. So, you know, Jesus says, you know, it's not just the person who commits adultery, but the person who lusts inside their heart that that is sinful. It's it's not just the person who goes out and you know beats up his neighbor that's really angry. It's the person who you know just saying you fool inside of his heart uh, fundamentally is angry. So there seems to be here in, in the biblical text itself a shift from this objective category of sin to more of a subjective category of sin. So I mean, I I don't want to say that we forget the subjective because it seems that the biblical narrative portrays that as something that we should care about. But it does seem when we move from this objective sphere of clearly this is sin, clearly this is adultery, clearly this is uh, racism, clearly this is whatever it may be, it's much more easy to define that's sin or that's not. When we move to this psychological subjective arena, it becomes much more difficult, messy, and murky. Yeah, and I, and I would say, first, first of all, you're absolutely right. It's much more murky and difficult. Uh, uh, and and secondly, I also think as Christians, we want to maintain something of a hierarchy. Now, the Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, whoever's look, I say to you, whoever's looked at a woman with lust in his eyes committed adultery. But I don't think what the Lord is saying there is, you know, if you've lusted after a woman, you might as well go and commit adultery with her. I don't think he's saying that. Uh, and we in the church still want to, to maintain a distinction between, yes, sins that take place in our mind and perhaps damage us as people and sins that actually seriously damage other people or the body of Christ or the society in which we're involved. So I, I certainly agree with you. We don't want to get rid of psychological categories. We certainly don't want to belittle the damage that words can do. You know, if you use a racial epithet about somebody, you are you're not just describing them, you're, you're damaging them, you're denigrating them, you're, you're pushing them, putting them into place somehow. So we don't want to, to dismiss you know, concerns about language, etc. as trivial. But I think we need to understand that when we make that move into that kind of territory, it gets a whole lot trickier. 
And you see this with the way what is and is not acceptable language is, is changing all the time. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch, the English actor, gets into trouble for referring to coloured people rather than people of colour, uh, which would seem on the surface to be a fairly small change, particularly when the NAACP has that very offended phrase in its title. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's also witnesses to how you know, it can be very difficult to know what the rules are once uh, mm-hmm. once you've you've leveled out oppression and psychological oppression sits on the same level as every other kind of oppression you're in you're in very dangerous and unstable waters at that point i suppose this next question we've we've really been kind of dancing around it a little bit no well, not dancing around it but we've sort of maybe offered partial answers to it but if i'm specifically interested in how to answer this as a pastor so maybe if 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 some someone in my congregation comes up and they they say well how did sex and sexual identity like became such a basic marker for someone's identity? Because I think that's a question that we're most pastors probably struggle to answer because we do want to affirm that we are sexual beings, but we don't want to put that as, as the foundation of, of who we are. But that is really what our society says is that at, at my fundamental core of who I am, I am a sexual being and that's how I define myself above and beyond everything else. So, um, can you just maybe answer how how we should try to respond to that? Well, the first thing is, uh, I mean, that's essentially what I'm trying to get at in the book. Uh, I would want to to make the case that uh, sexual identity is historically it's 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 a historical artifact. It's something that's emerged. You know, I might start by saying, you know, human beings we are creatures that desire. But the shape of those desires is historically conditioned. I taught a class this morning and I said to the kids mm-hmm. in class, okay, if I take all your cell phones off you and say, it's okay, I'll come back in 12 months' time, uh, how are you going to feel? And the kid, one of the kids said, I'd feel really ticked off. And I said, yeah, because you des- you know, your identity is wrapped up in your cell phone. I said, but 30 years ago, cell phones didn't exist. So your cell phone identity is is a product of history it's it's contingent on a historical process you were born as a desiring creature but the the nature of your desires and how they connect to your identity that's historically contingent so one of the first things i'd want to do is uh emphasize i'd want to relativize lgbtq plus identity uh, that's the, the first thing i do and i anticipate mm-hmm. that you know when my book gets hammered by the lgbtq plus community it won't be because it's polemical because it isn't directly polemical and very even-handed and polite throughout mm-hmm. but what i do is i relativize yeah. their identities and they will find that deeply offensive deeply disturbing because i'm saying you know it doesn't have to be this way uh, so the first thing is to is to relativize those identities secondly i think you're right uh, we, we certainly want to acknowledge that some of the most powerful desires uh, we have, and you can look back through history, some of the most powerful desires human beings have manifested in history have been sexual desires. What's the Iliad about? It's about a guy who steals another man's wife and the guy gets angry and they go off and you know, spend 10 years trying to get her back. Uh, the great epics of, of world literature often focus upon erotic desire. So clearly it's, it's an important part of, of what makes us human. Then I think you're going to have to make the positive case. Yes, but, but, but what does God desire for the ordering of our desires? What are human beings at their deepest level? And I'd want to make the case, Christiana saying, you know, your identity is in Christ. Where I would perhaps add something to that as a, as a purely intellectual sort of answer is to say, 
We also know that identities are community shaped. The LGBTQ plus community has been a very potent social cultural force because it is a true community. These people love each other. They look after each other. They watch each other's backs. They, they operate as a kind of coherent unity. They may be divided among themselves in private, but in public, they're a rock solid community. And I think the church needs to, to work on being a community. That may actually become easier as the, as the culture becomes more hostile to Christianity. It may well become easier to be true communities. I'm sure that uh, you know, the LBGTQ forged itself as a powerful community precisely because it was marginalized, precisely because society was so hostile to it, that it bound them together. Maybe that's what will happen in Christianity. But the claim that your identity is as a Christian, your identity is in Christ, has to be uh, backed up by a community that, that makes that real in the way, to go back to the, an earlier concept we talked about, in the way we intuit reality. It has to be intuitive. And that's hard work. That's going to take hard work. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you a question about something that I heard you say recently. And I don't recall if you said this in the book or not, but you this, you were giving a talk in Australia. And you said that the gospel is implausible in our current culture. And that really struck me as something that I think we need to be paying attention to as, as the church. And... Um, I guess my question is, how do we navigate um, conversations around repentance when um, obviously certain things that we need to repent of are sexual sins? And so how do we talk about repentance in this culture that sees, look, my sexual uh, preferences are at the very core of who I am? Like, that seems like a very difficult hurdle to get over uh, for the church. And how are we going to even have that conversation? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think the problem there sort of goes back to the final part of the answer I just gave, that the only way we can plausibly do it is by having a stronger community than the one people are in at the moment. That that might give us our bridge, that might make us uh, attractive. I think another dimension to it as well, and I try to get to, to this in the book, is we need to realize that the narrative of expressive individualism, the narrative of psycho the psychological self, is not one that we stand apart from. It's not that we, we as Christians look at them out there and say, wow, they're all psychological selves. They need to come and join us. Actually, we're complicit in it as well. Uh, when you think about a lot of modern praise songs, uh, a lot of modern praise songs are focused on what? How I feel inside. Now, that's not, that's not wrong or sinful. We get that in the Psalms as well. But when that's most of, or, if, or all of your diet, that's a real problem. That's a real problem. It's not just the health, wealth, and happiness guys out there. It's the, well, Christianity is all about being psychologically happy, psychologically fulfilled. Look at the, uh, I think her name is Lauren Daigle. Look at the Christian Music Awards Song of the Year 20, 2019. Uh, you say, I think it was. And look at those lyrics. There's nothing there that I would say, uh, uh, in retrospect, is, is unbiblical. But I would say the overall effect is non-biblical, in that it's all about God meeting her needs. And God does meet our needs. That, that, that's an important part of the gospel. But he doesn't meet our needs as we understand our needs or on our terms. So uh, I, I think you know, when it comes to repentance, repentance begins at home. We need to understand that we too have been complicit in the, in the, in the revolution that has led to the sexual revolution. Uh, 
Uh, and indeed, as I point out in the book, uh, we're complicit in gay marriage as well. The, the logic of gay marriage is simply the logic of no-fault divorce. And you know, how, many, how many churches in our experience have turned a blind eye to no-fault divorces within their midst? Well, if you don't care about no-fault divorce, you have no grounds on which to, to look a gay couple in the eye and say, I don't think you should be married. You've already conceded the point. So, you know, reform reformation repentance it's got to really begin with the church and it's hard and the church will get smaller as a result of it initially but it's all part of of building that consistent faithful community that i think is the only way of of making christianity plausible not on a mass cultural level but maybe to your next door neighbor to the friend to the person you meet in the street who asks about what christianity is how much do you think of this change and this shift can and even just the church's culture be attributed to almost this forsaking of a more liturgical traditional elements to almost a juvenilization uh, of the church? Yeah, that's a good question. It's very clear that a lot of what passes for for Christianity and Christian worship today is is rather childish and juvenile. Uh, without wanting to pick on it, I mean, it, it affects us all. Again, I don't take this as a Truman criticizing everybody else. Truman understands, you know, I understand that I'm complicit in, in some of this uh, as well. So I, I think you're absolutely right. That's an, uh, and that's an interesting phenomenon that I think emerges out of a, a, a much wider culture where youth has emerged as very important. And indeed, where we've, where we've relativized or abolished the standard uh, rites of passage to adulthood, getting married and having your first uh, a, a experience of sexual intercourse, having got married, that was a right that society regarded as a rite of passage to adulthood. Now kids are having sexual intercourse without getting married, early age, etc., etc. A rite of passage to adulthood has gone. Inevitably, that bleeds over into the church. One of the things that I've been encouraged by, uh, and, and it's odd for me to say this as a Presbyterian, one of the things I've been encouraged by at, at Grove uh, college where I teach is we have quite a number of kids each year. They come from uh, Bible churches and they end up going to the local Anglican church because they love the liturgy. And there, there does seem to be a hunger among the rising generation of young Christians for not simply for the aesthetics of liturgy. I don't think they're just going because it has this old world feel. They actually want to feel part of something bigger than themselves, part of something external to themselves. They don't want the world to conform to them. They want to find a world they can conform to. So I'm encouraged that you know, my generation, we got it hopelessly wrong. The rising generation, there are, there are green shoots there, I think, that indicate that maybe, maybe the, the commercialized, consumerized Christianity that, that, that was the you know, the, the waters that I swam in, the air that I breathed, maybe that's proved to be ultimately not distinctive and unsatisfying. Mm. And, and, and there's a move towards the outward again. So one idea that I wanted you to tease out a little bit more, uh, we talked about it a little bit, is this shift from a culture of honor to a culture of dignity, where dignity is the the key word that everybody's using. And you mentioned how th- that's fundamentally, you know, if you just think everybody has dignity, that's a good thing. That's a good shift. That's something that was a positive, um, I guess, outworking uh, of the enlightenment, if that, if that's the right 
usage of the term when when it comes through. Um, but when it's hijacked in certain ways, it can become negative. You know, even after reading your book, I got on Facebook and I'm scrolling through, and I, you know, I've I have friends who who are homosexuals and other otherwise, and I see that all of a sudden I see this phrasing that you're using here, dignity and other things, just jumping out. Everybody's using these terms. So, what's the idea behind the shift, and how and Maybe talk a little bit more about how dignity can be, I guess, become problematic in some ways. Because I think just when you say dignity, I'm fine with it. <laughs> but there are negative things. Yeah, I, I think dignity can be a very biblical concept. Uh, the, the shift really takes place, I think, from the late Middle Ages to the beginning of the 18th century, when suddenly the old hierarchies, and honor is a very hierarchical kind of concept. Uh, the old hierarchies are shown to be uh, not necessary. They can change. They don't all change, but they're shown to be. There's no reason why we have peasants and lords of the manor, etc. Actually, we, we can you know, society can be more egalitarian than that. So that's when honor goes into eclipse in the West, and, and universal dignity, the dignity of every man or woman, uh, comes to to center stage, and that is a good thing. But what happens, of course, is that over time, particularly after assaults on the idea of human nature in the 19th century by Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin, uh, etc. Uh, it becomes detached from any notion of human nature. And once dignity is detached from notions of a sort of transcendent notion of human nature, it really does then become the dignity of the individual. Uh, and the dignity of the individual is grounded in other people, to use the you know, Charles Taylor slash Hegel's term, in other people recognizing them. And that doesn't mean you know, you're walking down the street and, hey, I see Jordan, and I wave, hey, Jordan, it's Carl. And you say, hey, Carl, it's Jordan. We recognize it. It's not that. Recognition means me acknowledging you as who you think you are. Uh, that's how dignity is, is kind of maintained in this very individualized country, uh, culture. Yeah, I think you can see the shift again critical race theory. If you go back to the civil rights era of, uh, of Martin Luther King, my reading, uh, my, my reading of the works of Dr. Luther, uh, Martin Luther King indicates that you know, the passion that drove him on civil rights was every, every, every white guy and every black guy is a human being. There is such a thing as human nature, and therefore we should all be treated the same before the law. We should all have that same status before the law in society. We shouldn't be segregated, etc., etc. When you move into the realm of critical theory, queer theory, critical race theory, etc., the idea of human nature becomes something that is regarded as it's the oppressive construction of the heterosexual white man imposed on everybody else. Well, human nature is just a way of naturalizing white heteronormativity. Uh, and, uh, and that's the sort of the final intellectual step, if you like. So now we have civil rights articulated, not on the grounds of every individual is, is a human being and therefore uh, entitled to, to equal standing before the law. We have the case of every human being in terms of the identity that they assume to themselves is entitled to have that identity recognized by everybody else. It isn't quite as simple as that. You know, the guy who wants to identify as a Ku Klux Klan freak, you know, doesn't get quite the same cultural cachet as, as somebody, you know, wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. The, the society still has certain exclusions and marginalizes certain people. But the essential idea is dignity is now 
I, as an individual, am entitled to be recognized for who I think I am within certain limits. I think I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. You better use female pronouns when you're talking to me, because if you don't, you're denying my identity and you are depriving me of my dignity. So that's how that sort of plays out. So dignity, a very good thing. But I would say for it to be meaningful, it has to be grounded in something transcendent. I would say as a Christian, the image of God means that I'm going to treat or should treat every human being as somebody with integrity. It doesn't mean, though, that I have to accept every self-chosen identity they present to me as legitimate. So if... If I'm talking to a non-Christian, what would you say I would ground that uh, piece of dignity in? If if they say, I don't believe that there's the image of God, is there something natural that that you would point to and say, this is it? Um, that's, that's hard because, of course, when you're talking to unbelievers, the thing that makes them unbelievers is that, by and large, they don't accept what the Bible says about things. So there's always that problem, you know, whatever issue you're dealing with. Uh, I think that uh, I, one way I would approach it is is I might raise extreme cases. Okay, so if if I'm entitled to self-identify as a woman, why am I not entitled to self-identify as Napoleon Bonaparte? To which the response might come, well, you're obviously not Napoleon Bonaparte. Say, well, what's the evidence for that? Well, your body. It's, it's in the, the, the beginning of the 21st century. You're taller than Napoleon was. You don't speak with a, a Corsican accent. You can't possibly. Okay, so my body is the piece of evidence we're using here. Well, why does why is the body counter evidence to my claim to be Napoleon when it isn't counter evidence to my claim to be, you know, Caroline Truman, not Carl Truman? Uh, and, and I think there are ways that one could could fairly easily highlight the the inconsistencies in the radical uh, queer theory kind of approach to things. Uh, of course, whether that makes people change their mind or merely shrug their shoulders, uh, I, I'm always you know, think about Elijah on Mount Carmel. Yeah, what does Elijah do on Mount Carmel? He proves that Baal doesn't exist. Uh, and Jezebel is humiliated because, at a minimum, her god can't be bothered to turn up and help her out. What's her response? Uh, you know, today I will take your head off your shoulders. You know, she doesn't sort of say, oh, gosh, Elijah, I got it terribly wrong. How can you forgive me? Let's try to do better. She digs herself in deeper. So you can come up with arguments, uh, I think, that are pretty decent. But whether they're plausible or not, um, and we've seen it again with, with critical race theory, when people start saying, you know, logic, evidence and reason are white constructs, <laughs> at that point, okay, I, I just can't argue anymore. Yeah, we're, we're trapped here. We're absolutely trapped. I'm curious, um, what, do you, what do you think are some of the biggest misunderstandings that Christians have about how we got to this point? I suppose one answer to that question is is that um, you know we're not on the outside looking in. We're actually part of the problem in some of our presuppositions and concessions that we've already made. But what are some other uh, misunderstandings that you think Christians have about this whole movement? Yeah, I think one of the uh, one of the one of the things about the sexual revolution that, stu- that Christians have misunderstood is we tended to think about it in terms of behavior. Uh, that it's about expanding the range of sexually acceptable behaviors, whereas in reality it's about identity. And that's very different. That's why you know, some Christians still seem to think that saying, you know, well, we don't believe in, in we, we don't believe that homosexuality is legitimate, but we don't believe premarital heterosex, heterosexual sex is legitimate either. 
you're talking about two different things there. On the one hand, as far as the culture is concerned, you're denying an identity. On the other hand, you're merely talking about an, an illegitimate outlet for an otherwise legitimate identity. So I, I think the the realization that what we're talking about is identity, not behavior, is uh, um, extremely uh, important. Mm -hmm. I think Christians need to realize, therefore, following on from that, that this has been going on for a long time. Again, one of the things that, that I address right at the start of the book is many Christians were taken aback, not just at the speed at which gay marriage became legitimate, but then at the incredible speed that transgenderism became legitimate as well. And if we just focus on the symptoms, yeah, it can seem to be crazy. Uh, What's coming around the corner next? If you see these two things as a function of the sexual revolution and you realize that the framework of the sexual revolution has been uh, in the making for three, 350 years, then it makes the changes more explicable. And I think that has... That, that sort of takes Christians in two directions. On the one hand, that's very depressing because it really does uh, make us realize the, the monumental task before us, if you like. It's not just a question of passing a law or getting a Supreme Court judgment reversed. There is a weight of cultural gravity behind this. Uh, on the other hand, it's also encouraging because it might actually mean that things are less anarchic than we thought they were, that actually there is weirdly a kind of process and a logic going on here that we can study and we can come to understand and that things aren't simply flying out of control. Uh, There is, it's not a dramatic historical break. It's actually a process we're witnessing. So those are a couple of things that I might throw into the mix there. You've you've already mentioned that you, you think as Christians, we need to strengthen our communities, and that's one of the most important things um, that we can do. But I, I was wondering if you had any other maybe practical advice of, of how we should approach living in a, a, a culture that is just very hostile to some of our most basic beliefs. And that's something that a lot of Christians just, well, pretty much any Christian in the United States has no experience with. Um, so do you have any practical advice for us or maybe um i, I know you roger wrote the forward and i think he his next book that comes out um or maybe just came out um gets at some of that but i was curious as your thoughts on it yeah he very much focuses on on how you know we can develop models of community it's, it's sort of building on the benedict option from that perspective uh, his latest book which again uh, listeners should get hold of and read it's a very very good book it's somewhat dark and depressing but it's i think it's very re- it's, not, it's not without hope it's a realistic book it's not a hopeless book uh, i i think a number of things the church can do obviously the church uh, first and foremost has to continue doing what the church is supposed to do, and that's dispensing the means of grace. The church is to proclaim the word, uh, engage in corporate gathered worship, uh, dispense the sacraments, the ordinances. Uh, So the church has to be the church first and foremost. Uh, Secondly, I think the, the church should try to make sure that it really is teaching her people well, that we know what we believe and why we believe it. Because, you know, if... If your answer to to believing something never rises above the level of, well, the Bible says so, you're going to find that an increasingly, on one level, that's a great answer. Yeah, we believe things because the Bible 
tells us so. On the other hand, we all know the way we think and we all know the pressures coming from the culture at us. It's very helpful to be able to expand on that answer and to realize, well, the Bible says so because actually it makes sense and it fits into a much bigger framework of reality such that if we were to take this piece out, all kinds of horrible changes would take place in in other areas of our thinking. So I think a, a cohesive catechetical process in the church uh, is an important one. And then again, in the book, at, at the very last chapter, I asked the question, are there eras in church history where the church has faced similar situations before? And often, you know, Protestants, we tend to look back either to the you know, the 18th century revivals, maybe there's going to be a massive revival and that will transform society. Or we look back to the Reformation where the the the, the church and the civil magistrate worked hand in glove. Maybe we can go back there. If you're a Catholic, can we go back to the Middle Ages, to the great synthesis where Thomas Aquinas is unifying knowledge, etc., etc. None of these things are remotely on the horizon at this particular point in time. Maybe a revival will come, but I think we shouldn't bank on that you know we pray for that but let's not make that a principal strategy i think the second century in the second century of a situation where the church is not understood by the wider culture and to the extent it's known at all it's known as as immoral because hey they eat eat somebody's body and drink blood uh they call each other brother and sister well that's a bit sexually dubious quite frankly uh, so there's there's a sort of immoral aura hangs over the church, which is what we have today. Oh, you know, the Christians, they're the bigoted ones. They don't believe that stuff because it's true. They believe that because they're bigoted. They're like white supremacists. They're like racists. There's a moral problem with the church. Uh, and... And also the church is seen as seditious. You know, they, they, they worship Jesus. They talk about Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King. Well, that seems to be a slap in the face of Caesar. Again, we're seen as seditious because we won't go along with the, the moral imagination as it's now constituted because, hey, we won't marry a gay couple in our church. That's, that jeopardizes society as the world out there imagines it to be. We're seen as seditious. So I think there's a very close parallel with the, the second century. How does the second century respond? Well, to the extent that we can reconstruct it, uh, the second century Christians they operate as good citizens of the Roman Empire, as good subjects of Caesar, to the extent that they are able to do so. Their modus operandi in the second century is not culture war. It's not, you know, let's take them all down, let, let's fight tooth and nail every aspect of the culture at this point. No. Second century church is, you know, we are good citizens. Leave us alone to be Christians and we will be good citizens. We will be faithful to Caesar. There are going to be limits. We're not going to be able to sacrifice to Caesar as God, for example. And um, when those things are imposed, there's going to be persecution. But what the church did in the second century was it, it, they tried to be good citizens and they tried to be a tight-knit, supportive community. And guess what? The second century leads to the third century and the third century leads to the fourth century. And in the fourth century, Christianity is kind of like the LGBTQ movement of its day. Suddenly, it's the dominant political force, not because it's aspired to be so, but because it's been faithful and hospitable and, uh, and has trusted the Lord. That's awesome. That's really helpful. Uh, one, one last concept I wanted maybe you to touch on for just a few minutes before we wrap up is in the early stages of the book, you, you're talking about these different ideas of different cultures, and then there's an anti-culture 
which it seems we're in this version of anti-culture. Uh, can you talk to what these terms mean and and what it means to be in an anti-culture? Well, typically, culture is the way I use it in the book. Uh, culture is is the systems, the behaviors, the patterns, the structures by which one generation transmits its values to the next generation, by which it sort of replicates itself, not always in a blind way, uh, a blindly obedient way. Cultures clearly change over time, but there is a, a general passing on of knowledge and wisdom from one generation to the next. What's interesting about modernist culture, and this really emerges in the 19th century, is we see a culture emerging where the elites, the intellectuals, the artists, the thinkers, the teachers, the politicians uh, are no longer committed to a view of the past whereby they want to transmit what is good from the past into the future. Uh, They are interested in a kind of iconoclastic view of the past that the elites today are interested in the destruction of past culture in order to make way for something new, even utopian. Most obvious example is uh, sexual morality in marriage. Here you have an institution hallowed by centuries uh, suddenly being completely evacuated of any of the real meaning that it once had, turned on its head. Uh, You have Uh, Religious symbols being used by artists, not in order to promote the faith or to cultivate reverence in the audience, but to mock the faith, to undermine the faith. The example I use in the book is Andres Serrano's uh, famous, and apologies to listeners for using the title, but this is what it's called, Piss Christ, which is a crucifix submerged in a bottle of Serrano's own urine. Uh, He's since made these rather weak claims that it was an attempt to sort of, you know, actually promote Christianity. No, it isn't. It's an attempt to make Christianity something of the sewer. It's an attempt to to turn the sacramental into the excremental. Uh, We have elites committed not to borrowing and transforming the past in order to improve the present and the future, but actually to destroying the past. Uh, We live in a very iconoclastic moment, and that's what Philip Reef would call an anti-culture. It's not really in the game of culture, the transmission of values. It's in the game of destroying values. And what's worrying about that is, you know, no culture has ever done that and survived. You know, whether we can survive or not you know, is, is a moot question at this point, because it's never been done before. Never been done before. That's awesome. So I want to remind all of our listeners that you, whenever, whenever you're listening to this episode, uh, Carl Truman's book is available, so you need to go pick up yourself a copy, um, read more about it. I think you're going to learn a lot. I mean, I learned all sorts of history stuff that I had no idea that was contributing uh, to the current cultural moment that we're in, and I think it's indispensable for Christians to understand this, and especially pastors. So I I recommend Dr. Truman's book. Go get a copy of it. I think it's fantastic. I think Brandon would echo that. Um, And we want to thank you, Dr. Truman, for coming on the show again to talk about it. This This has been awesome. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I, I think I've got a third co-host here today, apparently. So I don't know if he wants to say anything. No. Yeah, he's been pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I've got my son who decided to, to jump in. I guess I must have woken him up from his nap. So uh, he was banging on the door, and I brought him in here, and he's been really good. So everybody's been listening. You've, you've got Samson, uh, my son, on the on the line as well. So give him a shout-out or something. But thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.